Hello and welcome to another edition of Reptile Living Room. I am your host as always, John F. Taylor. And uh, <clears throat> in today's episode, we are doing another episode of Interview with an Expert. And in this week, we are talking to none other than Dr. Rulon Clark of San Diego State University uh, Herpetology Department. And uh, Rulon, uh, or Dr. Clark rather, talks to us about uh, rattlesnakes and uh, venom and uh, rattlesnake behaviors and just a really super, super in-depth, uh, pretty much scientific discussion about rattlesnakes altogether. So we hope you enjoy the show as always, and uh, look forward to hearing your comments on the on the uh, show notes and on the various blogs uh, that we have. So without further ado, here is Dr. Rulon Clark on rattlesnakes. We're here today at SDSU with Dr. Uh, Dr. Clark, who's doing some uh, fantastic research on the rattlesnake, or the species altogether. I guess one of the first things we'd want to ask you is, how did you get involved in reptiles? I mean, what was the... <laughs> well, I, that's probably a common story um, with, with herpetologists in general. You know, I, I never grew out of it. Right? Oh, okay. Like I'm one of those guys who, as a little kid, I think lots of little kids go through this where they have a fascination with animals, mm-hmm. and in particular animals that are... Um, small and catchable, right? Okay. I think a lot of kids go through this thing where if they can actually physically catch and hold and like look at an animal, right? That's just you know, you, it's amazing, right? Like yeah, definitely. The snake kind of love for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors, camping, hiking, had very supportive parents, and mm-hmm. you know, many kids go through a stage where they're like, I'm gonna do this when I grow up and be your, you know, herpetologist or zoologist or right, or whatever. Right. So I, you know, I had that. I didn't have a very well conceptualized idea of what I would be, but I just really wanted to do something that involved animals and outdoors. Right. Um, and then I also had a, a good friend. I was fortunate enough to have a friend whose father worked at a museum um, near where I grew up. Oh wow! And he would take collecting expeditions out to the desert in southern Utah, mm-hmm. um, and he took me along on a couple of those. So I, I learned for fairly early on that you could be a professional biologist in this field right. and spend a lot of your time um, you know, with these animals outdoors. And so I went to college with the idea that that's what I'm going to do. Right. Um, I, I went to Utah State as an undergraduate and uh, there's a, a really a great herpetologist there named uh, Ed Brody. Um, and in my first year there, I just glommed onto his lab. It's like, you know, please take me in and, and I, I will you know, clean cages, wash dishes, do whatever. <laughs> exactly. Whatever um, it takes, I'll do yeah. it. <laughs> And so he opened his lab doors to me. I, I got involved in some research projects there. I helped his grad students on on a project for several summers in, in the deserts outside of Yuma, Arizona, mm-hmm. um, chasing around flat-tailed horn lizards. Oof. Just great <laughs> exposure to all sorts of you know, different cool animals, lots of herbs. Right. Um, it was actually out there that I first got interested in rattlesnakes because sidewinders are the most common vertebrate animal that we would come across. Right, exactly. And the the Sonoran Desert there is an extremely common snake. So Mm -hmm. we'd see sidewinders all the time. And, you know, I I found them fascinating. They weren't doing much. Mostly they were just kind of cratered into, like, little, you know, sand piles next to mammal burrows. Right. I figured they were hunting, you know, Mm -hmm. it seemed fairly obvious. And and I, I remember when I started my PhD, which, you know, again, I just wanted to do something related to herps and animal behavior. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought back to those observations. Okay. And um, thought, well, um, w- what do people really know about the hunting behaviors of these animals? And right. The, you know, what they're actually doing in terms of their 
sitting and waiting long enough for, for prey to come close and they can bite it and eat it. Um, and, you know, like a, like a lot of things, when you get down to the details, people actually didn't know that much about it from a scientific standpoint. Mm -hmm. People made lots of observations and, like, anecdotal stuff, but in terms of kind of detailed, quantified studies, there wasn't much done. So I figured that was an area where I could, uh, could make some good contributions. Definitely. And ever since then, I've just kind of been steamrolling, keeping going with, with uh, research in that system and working with those animals because, you know, fascinating. Yeah, very fun. definitely. Now, something that you brought up in some of your research was talking about the um, socialization of rattlesnakes. Right. How did you come across to, you know, take a look at that and find out if they were actual social animals? Well, that's interesting. You know, you I, I think anybody who starts studying these animals in the field is going to rapidly discover that they're much more complicated than you might give them credit for. Right. A lot of aspects of their behavior, and in particular in, in aspects of their social lives. Mm -hmm. And so th that's what happened to me when I started studying the foraging behavior of timber rattlesnakes. Okay. I would follow individuals around the field with radio telemetry, and it was just striking to me how much social interaction they had with each other. You know, right. we, we, there's this view in both kind of the scientific literature and the lay literature that snakes are generally asocial animals. Right. And I, I think that's because we, we think of them as, um, you know, you, you said before, some people think of them as stupid. Um, yeah, I agree. I think people think right. they're, they're not necessarily smart, but I, I think that's more akin to them just being alien. They're very different from right. us. So it's very difficult for us to realize that they might have kind of rich, complicated social lives because they don't have the same type of rich, complicated social lives that we do. That we do, right. Or it's a very different type of social life, so mm -hmm. you have to spend, you know, some some more time, kind of, um, and energy getting out there and trying to, to tease apart aspects of that social life. Right, because I remember um, hearing about back east and stuff where they're um, exposed to much colder temperatures than they are here in California, obviously, right. that there would be hibernaculum where they would, you know, where groups of them would den together, right. and that was basically the extent of, you know, a rattlesnake social life, or so right. I thought, until your research was made known to me, and, and now your uh, research revealed that there's group defense, um, alarm signals, maternal right. defense of the young. Right. And, well, I mean, and, and a lot of that, I mean, I can't take credit for all of that. Um, a lot of that is, has been, there have been a bunch of people studying different rattlesnake species who have noticed those different aspects of, oh, okay. of their behavior. So um, I was kind of capitalizing on that and then saying, well, we can look at other aspects of this social behavior as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right in that people, you know, doing field work on snakes have noticed not only are they gregarious for for denning, so they'll mm -hmm. all go back to one place to go to the same den, uh, but females that are pregnant will spend the summer together, you know, gestating in groups in piles. Wow. Um, they're they're kind of you know you can view them as analogous to birds incubating their young, but they're right. just incubating their young internally. Right. So they 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 come together to a good a rookery site, a good birthing area where there's places to hide and good exposure for the sun and then um, they, they come out and you know make sure that those young are developing an optimal temperature by pushing their body out into the sun when they need to warm up a bit and wow. so on and so forth and then um, when they do give birth 
um, they don't, you know, they, they stay with the young for kind of this period of the young's life where they're, they're really helpless. They, mm -hmm. They're born with like a skin that they need to shed. Right. And it right. takes, you know, a week or so for them to go through that first shed cycle. Mm -hmm. And so the young kind of pile up with the moms and they all kind of lay around as a group and bask and, um, the females tend to be more defensive during that period in, in some species of rouse, sure. I should say. That I was never able to uh, to investigate that in timber rattlesnakes, but mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a, a guy named um, uh, Dave Duval who him and his students did a lot of work in Wyoming on a western rattlesnake species. Mm -hmm. And one of their studies showed that uh, females tend to be much more defensive, much more aggressive towards predators during that post-birth stage. Wow. So they're, they're potentially providing um, defense for the young. And then the young definitely follow the trails of adults, maybe their mom, maybe other adults. They follow chemical trails left by the adults so that they can find the overwintering sites. That's so the next thing I wanted to ask you about is in uh, some further research you did, you were talking about chemo uh, chemocentry trails. Right. And then being followed, right? So it's like the young are actually going back to the same hibernaculums that the adults would go to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it seems so that they, they do that, and I'm, I'm, you know, that's that's again in timber rattlesnakes. I bet you other rattlesnakes probably do something similar. Right. Um, in timbers, you know, I also noticed that um, even the ones that I, I had a captive colony of timbers, so mm -hmm. I was raising. Um, some litters that were born in captivity, I was raising them up. But, and with those animals, um, one of my studies showed that the, the females, at least, recognize litter mates later in life yeah. and prefer to associate <coughs> much more closely with them. Mm -hmm. And I always assumed that was, you know, through chemosensory cues. Right. Because so much of the world is chemical, you know, they, they see the world, if you will, through, uh, through their chemosensory system. Right. You know. So, um, I always assume the ability to recognize relatives, and then they have this preference for for <coughs> associating more closely with their relatives. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's kind of again one of these subtle aspects of their social system. I think they actually have some sort of a family structure. So it, it's right. centered around dens, but even within dens, um, some of my genetic work that I'm I'm, I'm working on now shows that females. Um, within those dens are, that come together to give birth, they're more likely to be close relatives than just random females within those same populations. Wow. So either mother-daughter or sister-sister mm -hmm. relationships seem important for them mm -hmm. during that <coughs> gestation period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all of those things, you know, there, there are other indications as well that they have kind of these richer, more complicated social relationships than, than we give them credit for. Right. And all of that work, most of it's been done in timber rattlesnakes, but I, I think it probably applies to other rattlesnake species. Right. Now, kind of off topic, but not really. Um, as far as the rattlesnake roundups in Texas, mm, yeah. I'm not a big fan of... Th I think it would be safe to say you weren't either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, that'd be an understatement. Just, yeah, exactly. Same here. So, <laughs> when they are out there destroying hibernaculums, mm -hmm. as they have been known to do, mm -hmm. therefore this displaces a potential. Because we both know that not all the rattlesnakes are there all the time. Right. So therefore, they are displacing population. Potentially displacing populations, right? 
of later rattlesnakes. Would that not be in, uh, accurate? Yeah, no, that is accurate. I think they have a very heavy toll on rattlesnake populations, and I, I have problems with that both from an, an kind of an ecological standpoint and from a, a moral kind of ethical standpoint. Right. I mean, you can't tell me that if that was any other vertebrate animal besides a rattlesnake, if they were doing that to bunnies, for example. Exactly. Nobody would allow a bunch of people to go out grab rabbits, like chop their heads off, skin them alive, throw them around, you know, do right. these totally gruesome <coughs> things and and be okay with it and treat it as like a spectacle, you know, right. it's barbaric. Yeah. There's no reason that people should be able to do that with rattlesnakes. I mean, our society generally, you know, frowns on that type of behavior and has very strict laws for people who treat animals that way. Right. And, and I have no idea why they're allowed to continue that. Yeah, because I know, like, in the uh, Pennsylvania roundups, they don't actually slaughter anything. Right. They actually go out, collect, document where it was found, and return it. Right. And I don't understand how Texas is still getting away with it. But right. Okay, that's another topic for another right. interview. <laughs> I, I mean, but you're also right in that the ecological damage is potentially severe. I mean, they're, they're wiping out, potentially, populations of an important predator. Right. In those ecosystems where those snakes occur... Snakes are, are historically some of the most abundant predators in those environments and have really important kind of community effects. They mm -hmm. have top-down predators, have kind of top-down effects on lower animals in the food chain that drive a lot of the dynamics right. of those ecosystems and communities. And that's actually something I just learned about um, by reading the author that we were talking about, David Quammen, right. in the Song of the Dodo, he mentioned tropic cascades. Exactly. And I was... I mean, I knew that, and as most lay people do, you know, we we're aware that, you know, okay, everything's connected in the environment. It's right. not, you know, it doesn't seem like that big of a picture until you actually break it down like he did. And could you explain to our listeners basically, you know, kind of what a tropic cascade Sure. in, you know, lay terms so they would understand, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll give my, my best. Okay, because <laughs> it is a pretty difficult topic, yeah. I know. Uh, so when, you know, one of one of the the good um, case studies for that that kind of illustrates the importance um, has actually been done in marine systems. Okay. Uh, so if you if you look at uh, animals like um, killer whales, like okay. there was a system where people found that killer whales as a top predator could move in to an environment, and if they change their behavior, or if they, you know, start eating different types of animals, that has all sorts of cascading effects. Right. Like killer whales moved into one particular environment, and um, the, their usual prey, um, I think sea lions or, or some sort of seal, right. was driven extinct or taken out of that environment. Okay. So those animals switched to eating, like, sea otters. When they switched okay. to eating sea otters... Um, they took a lot of sea otters out of the population, and as a result, the animals that the sea otters were eating were affected. Right. The animals the sea otters were eating were sea urchins. Okay. Um, so because the killer whales took sea otters out, sea urchins exploded. There were a bunch of sea urchins everywhere. They kind of went crazy and grazed all the kelp forests in that area down. Right. So they drove the entire ecosystem to a totally different state. Right. Because the kelp forest provided like this structure and was an important structure for the entire ecosystem. Right. So it had this massive life. effect just from kind of the top predator switching prey species. Switching prey species. And so, you know, taking top predators out or causing them to do things that change their behaviors can have all sorts of kind of cascading and sometimes unforeseen right. effects. Okay. Now Back to your research again, 
Talk to us about the uh, raising the uh, timbers that you did in mm-hmm. captivity, and then watching them in the wild again, and actually watching them recognize those chemosensory trails. Is is that like an instinct, or I mean, how, or do we know? Actually, yeah. I guess would be a better way to put it. Yeah. Was so it, it is partially instinctual. I, I think a lot of their chemosensory behaviors and all their behaviors in general are innate. They're, mm-hmm. they're, humans are actually somewhat unique in the in the. Um, perspective that we actually need to learn a lot of our behaviors. Right. right? Uh, many animals um, don't have that process. Instead, their behaviors develop kind of innately through kind of endogenous um, pathways within the the animal itself. Okay. So they don't need to have like experience with the environment to know that this is appropriate food. That's not appropriate food. Right. Um, that's just part of their development. And so with snakes, a, a lot of that is the the case, I think, when it comes to chemosensory recognition of, of other individuals or of males and females or of individuals mm-hmm. that they may be related to, um, and also their food. You know, I, I found with the timber rattlesnakes when I was raising them in captivity without, these were animals that had never been in the wild, never exposed to natural food. Right. They definitely recognized chemical trails from their food objects and would respond to those with with you know, predation-type behaviors. Right. You know, they would right. try to set up ambush sites next to little chemi- chemical trails that left be with chipmunks or, or mice mm-hmm. that they would normally encounter in the wild. Right, right. And speaking of the uh, ambush sites, you did some research on um, basically rattlesnakes choosing right. specific ambush sites, Yeah. which I personally find fascinating <laughs> yeah. because it's like, okay, you know, a rattlesnake's going down a trail, you know, 50 million times, yeah. you know, during its lifetime, and it just, you know, one day decides, okay, this is the best spot for hunting. Right. That's just, to me, that just speaks to the animal's intelligence once again. Right. And, it, you know, well, like most people, we always consider them, oh, you know, it's just, it's a reptile. Right. It can't possibly <laughs> be making choices. No, no, I think they're they're kind of complicated and sophisticated hunters. Like, yeah. they, you know, from all the stuff where we watch them in the field and, and look at their foraging behaviors, um, they're, they're very careful about where they, they set up those hunting sites. And they're mm-hmm. very good at choosing sites where there's a, a high number of prey animals that are likely to come back to that area within strike range. So that, you know they choose places where they're, they can hide, where they're very cryptic, and where there's a lot of prey traffic. Mm-hmm. And where it's the appropriate type of prey that's going to return there, right? Um, and and they need to do all that because their their basic predation strategy is is fundamentally they need to take these animals by surprise. Right. I mean, they're they're not very fast in the sense of a pursuit predator. Right. Like if, if they see a squirrel or a mouse, they they can't chase it. They down. They can't chase it down. They have it. an incredibly rapid strike, but in terms of their actual other movements, they're not that fast. Right. right? So they have to, whatever it is that they're trying to hunt, has to come within strike range. It has to be unaware that there's a snake there and to be surprised. So the snakes have to be very good about setting that that ambush up. Right. And so (coughs) their their main strategy there is to, you know, pick a good side and then to be extremely patient. You know, we we watch individuals that will wait for days at a site before... um, they get a lucky break and a, a, a little mouse comes by that hasn't detected the snake and comes close enough that they can bite it, inject venom, 
you know, kill it and swallow right. it and eat it. Right. Now, I know Harry Green um, talked about some of that in his book, mm-hmm. uh, Snakes, the Evolution of Mystery, right. <clears throat> about um, uh, fertile ants sure. sitting on trails for days on end, like you said. Or, or even longer for that species, yeah. Really? It's not one we've examined, but oh, wow. yeah, a lot of these pit vipers seem to have, you know, they're extreme sit-and-wait predators. They right. can wait for very long periods. I mean, they, they might only, my estimate for timber rattlesnakes, based on our field data, was that they're probably eating a meal once every two weeks. Really? Okay. Yeah. And the, that's over the course of an entire active season, they might eat um, around, you know, a thousand grams of, of prey biomass, which mm-hmm. would be equivalent to their own body weight. Right. Which isn't that much compared to the more active um mammal predators that burn through a lot of energy, right? Right, exactly. I mean, they're, they're adapted for a very kind of low energy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Now that's something else that you mentioned too in your research was the snakes actually making the choice as far as size of prey mm-hmm. versus, you know, they would take larger prey versus the smaller prey, even though right. there might be more smaller prey going by, you know. Yeah, so we, we found, yeah, so... Okay. Um, the the prey size thing is interesting, and I, I would like to actually explore that more. What what we found was that th- this was done with our snakes in captivity. Okay. And you know they, they do have innate recognition of prey, but I, I should I should have mentioned that they also like many animals. They also have the ability to learn from experience, and they will modify their feeding behavior. Right depending on on what they learn. Mm-hmm. So we actually took these snakes that didn't have. Um, any natural experience and we fed them different size mice or, or rats mm-hmm. and we treated those mice or rats with, with specific ke- chemical cues that they wouldn't right. normally have. Um, I, I think we used like a, a, a chemical cue from a fish. Yeah, I think one was a goldfish that you right. mentioned and I was like, yeah. huh. And, and that's just <laughs> because, you know, we wanted to choose a chemical cue that wasn't and that they had no experience with either in their own lives or as a species. Right. So timber rattlesnakes don't eat fish. Right. Um, but when they eat a mouse that has that uh, fish chemical cue on it, they mm-hmm. learn from that. Hey, this this you know fishy smelling rodent. Mm-hmm. This was a, a big kind of um, important, very you know useful prey item. So the next time they're exposed to that fish chemical cue. They exhibit a stronger response to it than they did before they had before ate, the exposure. Yeah, before they'd eaten something that had that cue on it. Wow. So if you look at the response to the the fish before their experience, they just ignore it. Right. But after they've eaten something that you know had that fish chemical cue, then they're like, okay, that's an appropriate prey item. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, if it's like a, a bigger prey item, so like a bigger rat versus a smaller mouse, mm-hmm. they're that increases the the strength of their response. They're, they're kind of turned on more, if you will, by right. the bigger prey item. So I think that's how they learn. Right. This is a not only a good prey item, but it's you know it's bigger. It contains more energy. I'll be, it'll be more beneficial for me to to try to ambush this thing than it would maybe a, a smaller thing. Right. So th- they'll they'll eat a range of prey sizes, right? Like mm-hmm. you know from you know diet studies, they'll eat things that are as small as shrews up to things that are as big as like squirrels or rabbits for some rattlesnake right. species. Right. Um, but I think the bigger snakes are definitely kind of biased towards the bigger prey items hmm. because they're they're more valuable. They contain more energy. Right. And so They'll, they'll tend to try to hunt things that are as, as big as they can swallow without obviously, you know, going overboard and, and 
hunting things that are too big for them to swallow. Right, right. Now, speaking of things that are too big to swallow, and I'm sure you've heard this question a million and one times about the internet picture and the exploding, you know, <laughs> Florida Burmese python or whatever, but I know if I don't ask you, somebody's going to ask me, <laughs> and I'm going to have to, you know. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> from your perspective, <laughs> yeah, was that photo faked, or was it actually... Because in my personal experience, in the captive animals that I've kept, right. if I, by chance, gave them something too large to eat, they'd sit there and stare at it, and, you know, they wouldn't eat it. Right. I have never encountered a snake that tried to swallow something that it couldn't physically handle. Yeah. So am I crazy or...? <laughs> no, not, not entirely. I, okay. I, I don't know for sure, and I'm actually... I've, 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 I think I've seen the photo, and I've seen people make passing reference to right, it. If, right. If I remember, it's a snake that appears to have tried to swallow an alligator. Right. But an alligator's kind of bursting out of the side. Right, the exactly. Um, so my perspective on that is that that would be highly unusual. Like you say, I think snakes are actually pretty good at, at making sure that they've, they're have they swallowing things that are small enough that they can actually get them down. Right. And if they try to take something on that doesn't, that is too big, they'll, you know, back off. They'll regurgitate right. it. Um, but that, that being said, I, I don't think it's, um, I, I think what might be happening in the wild is, is, um, is, you know, in, in animal behavior, there's a, a principle known as kind of the asset protection principle that means that if, if you're essentially, if you're in dire circumstances, you're willing to do much more risky things oh, because sure. otherwise you're going to die. Right. So right. animals that are very food limited or starved might attempt to eat things that are inappropriate oh, under okay. some conditions. And so I, I don't know if that could explain right. a snake trying to just try and as, until it you know, was obviously killed the snake trying to swallow something that was too big or maybe trying to swallow something that wasn't quite dead yet and then it struggled a bit and burst through the sidewall. Right. Okay. I guess it's not totally impossible, but I'm I would Highly be skeptical. <laughs> yes. Okay. I I would be a skeptic until somebody had actually documented the entire interaction. Right. right. Okay. Like it's not enough to just show a photo that because you're only looking at the end. Right. Those, the end how result. it ended up that way, right? Okay. Like, I would want to see somebody who documented that from the beginning with the snake trying and, and then not being able to do it right. and dying in order just to say, okay, that can happen. Okay. And under any circumstances, I think it's a highly unusual occurrence. Right. Okay. Very good. Now, in regards to your more recent research, you're looking at habitat fragmentation and populations of crotalus uh, species. Um, I know there's a lot more to it than that. Right. Um, what's kind of the background on that, and what are you what are you well, finding out so far? So when, when I was working with timber owl snakes, you know, another thing that I just you couldn't help but notice um, looking at all these populations is you know not only are they kind of small and endangered and not nearly as big as they used to be, they're mm -hmm. they're being driven extinct in a lot of places in the eastern United States. Um, you know, we have more land here and more rattlesnake species in the west, so a lot of the species aren't as Endangered as they are in the east. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, timber rattlesnakes are in, in many parts of the range. They're in trouble. Um, and and one of the things is that in the areas that they do occur, they occur in kind of these habitat islands that are all cut off from each other by right. roads. I mean, roads are, are a huge kind of footprint that people have on the environment, right? Especially back east, where you know the entire country out there is kind of carved up by roads. Right. You just can't find very many snake populations, timber rattlesnake snake populations, where there aren't some roads, 
or highways kind of cutting between them. Okay. And so, um, you know, we were we were. I was studying these snakes and, and taking genetic samples to look at like their social behavior mm-hmm. and I kind of thought to myself, look, at the same time I can use this genetic data to look at the population level connectedness mm-hmm. and to see if these populations that are that are fragmented by roads, mm-hmm. if there's any kind of ongoing gene flow between them or if they're just totally isolated. Right. Because if, if they're totally isolated, that that's not a good deal. Like, right. You know, they're more yeah. more likely to go extinct than exactly they'll, they'll run into like inbreeding problems. There there won't right. be kind of ongoing exchange of of uh, new mutations or adaptations to the environment from other populations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all sorts of problems with with having small isolated populations. Right. Um, so we did that. We used I, I, I spent a couple of years collecting samples more widely from bunches of populations and then using. Uh, their um, genotypes to look at the degree to which they're still connected. Mm-hmm. And it's troubling. They're not well connected at all anymore. Really? Um, roads have a, a major effect on how genetically differentiated those popula- populations are from each other. You know, from, from best we can tell, a, a road that's a significant road that has uh, at least like a, you know, a couple of thousand cars per day that go over it, which would okay. be about a car every minute or so mm-hmm. on average. So not not even the major highway, but you know, a, a significant Just road. Just a well-traveled road. Yeah, a well-traveled road. Um, the snakes pretty much avoid those roads, and when they do try to cross them, they probably run over a significant amount of the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, if you've ever watched a snake try to cross a road, and there's actually another study, not done by me, but done by a, another group that confirmed this, mm-hmm. they're extremely cautious. They, they move very slowly. Right. Um, I mean, if you think about it from their perspective, they're moving into this foreign, like entirely open, flat area right. where they're totally exposed to their potential predators. Um, so they ex- they tend to move very slowly, and it's like they're they're trying to rely on their natural cryptic camouflage, camouflage right? Um, but it, it doesn't work on a road, right? Right, exactly. And, and their response to cars, when like a car drives by, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't hit them, um, their response, unfortunately, is, is their response to most like really big, loud, noisy things in the environment. They freeze and you know hope and that their course, camouflage keeps them keeps hidden them safe. and that the, the thing goes away. Right. And so a lot of the time, They'll stay still on the road for a minute or even longer after a car goes by because they're in that kind of they're in the cautious, state, yeah, right. frozen mode, mm-hmm. and that makes them very susceptible to being run over by the by next, next car, car that comes along. So um, they don't do well with roads. Is, is the bottom line for right. that? And it's it's a problem for areas where there is a lot of road fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're we're following up on that work here actually with a, a an array of um, different animals in addition to snakes we're looking at uh, other reptiles and some small mammal species trying to do kind of a comparison of how a bunch of species oh, are wow. affected by road fragmentation okay now on the fragmentation thing um, these wildlife corridors that some people are talking about and have been built here in even in California mm-hmm. um, I know of a couple that I can think of off the top of my head right. are those actually working for so those are those can work for snakes if they're designed appropriately. Um, okay. Usually you have to have several different types of corridors to really connect animals across something like a road. Right. Right. So um, f- 
for large animals that people are generally those things are designed for for kind of macro predators, right? If, if you want to use that term, things like mountain lions, sure, bobcats, and so you have these big overpass structures um, that are you know vegetated and allow the animal to move over something like a road mm -hmm. um, without having to try to cross it. Um, snakes could potentially use those, and they might. I, I don't know of anybody who's studied that. Right. Um, but I think they're actually more likely to use underpass structures. You know, they're over right. the ground and um, have a lot of species have somewhat subterranean habitats. They're used to retreating to burrows and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I, I think if you wanted to have like snake-specific road crossing corridors, you would build right. like, and, and people do build underpass structures. Um, or, you know, build fencing that funnels animals into, like, culverts and allows them to move under the road safely. Right. Now, that's something I actually saw, or at least that's what it appeared to me to be, was in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. When I was at a herp show there, I noticed these, like you were talking about, the fences funneling in and then down to a culvert where yep. it would go across. And I asked a couple of the residents, and they said, well, as far as we know, it's for the reptiles. Right. And I was blown away by that. I'd never heard of anyone doing that. Yeah, people have started doing that for particular species, for reptiles, amphibians, um, okay. other small mammals. Um, for turtles, I think, they've, they've, there's a couple places in Florida where they've built underpass structures specifically for kind of herpetofauna. Okay. Um, you know, there, there's some situations where you have, like, turtles where a road kind of separates one part of their... Um, their pond or, or aquatic habitat from mm -hmm. another part, and so the turtles have to go back and forth between those. And oh, okay. you know, turtles are like snakes; they're horrible at crossing roads. Right. So they need, like, a, in order to do it effectively, they need some sort of an underpass structure. Okay. Now, in the isolated populations of the timber rattlesnakes that you had, uh, studied, were there any um, behavioral differences at all that you noticed? We didn't notice any behavioral differences. We weren't looking that closely at behavior, though. Okay. We were mainly kind of uh, at, the, at that level, we were studying just um, basic genotypic differences that, that weren't necessarily linked, linked to kind of other ecological differences. Okay. Uh, but, I, I, you know, like a lot of animals, I think there are probably behavioral differences between different uh, snake populations. Mm -hmm. so, those they're, they're long-lived animals, and they have the ability to to learn and adapt to their local environment. Right. I'm sure these snakes, like timber rattlesnakes, will live over 30 years in the wild. Wow. I'm, I'm sure over that time period, they come to know their home range and their home environment and the resources that are present there very well, mm -hmm. and can go back and forth from year to year to the same, you know, where they've learned are good foraging spots or good basking spots or good... Right you know, overwintering spots or hiding spots. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, um, one of the things you mentioned in your research was uh, the optimization of uh, species management. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that kind of struck me living here in the West and not talking about the timber rattlesnakes right. is to collect reptiles here, you know, you get a, a fishing license or fishing permit, whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that really disturbed me when I was reading through the rules and regulations, <laughs> specific to rattlesnakes was like, you know, they literally say it can be taken by any means necessary. And I'm like, yep. why would you do that? Yeah. Well, that is and it doesn't matter how many you collect or how you collect. So basically right. you can go out the shotgun and, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And that's, that's disturbing. I, 
I appreciate they, they do have a take limit, right? Like you can only. I take don't know. Two? I've never seen one. Okay, maybe they don't. No, that's I don't I don't like that. That's the case in a lot of states, and this kind of harkens back to what we were talking about with the Texas roundups. It's like it's like uh, state governments are making exceptions for these animals and not protecting them the same the way they do other animals in the environment. And see, the thing that blows me away though is with research like yourself and that others have done, we've seen if you take up you know top predators, it's yeah. going to go down the line. Right. Yeah, it's a bad deal. Like Why the are they are, still doing that? You know, it, 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 I think it all goes back to kind of this, this complicated relationship we have with snakes. You know, like as a, a primate species that has co-evolved over our evolutionary history with snakes. Right. You know, they, they're, they're venomous, they're potentially dangerous, and so we have kind of um, this innate kind of... Well, it, it develops as fear in some people, maybe as mm-hmm. fascination in others. Right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I I think people have strong reactions to them. Mm -hmm. And historically, um, you know, it was looked on as a good thing to just wipe them out. You know, you don't want these animals in the environment. They're potentially dangerous. Let's just go in and take them all out. You know, people Mm -hmm. treated mountain lions like that historically or wolves. You know, there are all sorts of predator eradication programs. Now, in modern times, we've come around to the more enlightened view, I think, of recognizing that these animals are very important kind of key aspects of a natural environment and if we want mm-hmm. to preserve the natural environment then we need to incorporate preserving animals that may be potentially dangerous even like predators right and you know people are coming around to that with mountain lions they're coming around to that with wolves you know we're able to reintroduce wolves to part of yellowstone right and people aren't so upset about the fact that we're protecting mountain lions anymore mm-hmm. they just haven't quite come around to that with rattlesnakes yet okay. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get there but I, I think it's the same type of thing, you know. Historically, um, we're used to treating these animals as as something to be managed or taken out of the environment. Mm-hmm. You know that that's changing, and maybe it will change more. Um, I think people just need to recognize that rattlesnakes are like other predators, and that they right. serve kind of key roles in ecosystems, and they deserve the same type of respect and predation that those other at- or sorry, respect and protection right. that those other animals have, and mm-hmm. our laws. And regulations should reflect that, mm-hmm. and th- and they don't, you know, here in California, and that's that that needs to be changed, I think. Right now, <coughs> along that same line, um, do you think it's too little, too late, or do you think we actually still have a shot at not wiping out the entire reptile population? No, I, I think we definitely have a shot. I think the okay. good thing about many of these species is they're historically very abundant. They're also fairly resilient. Um, they're um, yeah, they they can be very dense in certain populations. So I think there are certain areas where they're not well collected, where they're still good, strong populations. And if we, I, I think it's better to put protections in place before it gets to the point where the species is in trouble or vanishing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of our conservation measures tend to be reactive rather than proactive. Right. I'd right. much rather see, hey, you know, maybe. Um, you know, the Southern Pacific grouse snake still is fairly abundant, but let's keep it that way. Obviously, right. it's an important kind of natural part of the ecosystems around here. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we're not uh, just going out and, and wiping it out from the areas where it still occurs in good numbers. Right, right, okay. Now, so what's your uh, what's your research uh, tack now that you're 
if you can say. Sure, yeah, I'll, I can talk a bit about that. So we're um, we're continuing to do some of the the stuff that I mentioned earlier with habitat fragmentation okay. and kind of a. Uh, looking at the effects of that on a, on a range of small animal species. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also, I, I'm getting very interested in predator-prey interactions between rattlesnakes and small mammals. Okay. So one thing that I haven't talked about yet, what a, a lot of um, the animals that rattlesnakes prey on actually have uh, this series of interesting displays that they'll exhibit when they discover snakes. Um, locally, California ground squirrels do this a lot. Like, uh, you know, Pacific, Southern Pacific rattlesnakes and Northern Pacific rattlesnakes will go into a ground squirrel colony, and a lot of their prey is ground squirrel pups. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, you know, hide and, and ambush these ground squirrel pups. When the ground squirrels discover them, you know, they don't just, you know, run away or, or hide. They actually exhibit, like, a series of kind of tail flagging displays, and mm-hmm. they'll throw substrate at them. Um, they're, they're not actually, in their natural interactions, they they mainly just display. They're mm-hmm. not like actively mobbing the snakes most of the time. Right. So it seems to me that, that they're trying to essentially communicate with the snakes potentially. Right. Um, that they've discovered the snake and uh, essentially trying to tell the snake, give up here. You know, move away. Go hunt animals that don't know that you're there. Right. Because once the snake has been discovered, like I was saying earlier, they rely on ambush. Right. They like rely on that, cryptic coloration yeah, exactly. and what have you. Once their cover's been blown, if you will, if, right. if their presence is being advertised among the squirrels, they're not going to be successful at that spot. For so, sexual hunting, right. Know, they might be more prone to giving up and leaving and going to hunt in new areas. And so that, that may be a mechanism that the squirrels can use to essentially convince the snakes to, to leave them alone and right. go to, to new areas. So we're, we're studying that dynamic. We're, we're um, radio tagging snakes, uh, following them around when they're hunting in these squirrel colonies, mm-hmm. uh, recording interactions between the squirrels and the snakes, looking to see how it affects the snakes' foraging behavior, um, how their foraging movements change after some of these interactions, and looking at all sorts of other as- aspects of kind of snake foraging behavior in the field. So okay. my, my interest in kind of rattlesnake predation behavior is definitely ongoing, and is going to involve a lot more kind of field studies uh, locally. Um, a lot of that work we're actually doing in the in the San Francisco Bay Area, just because they they have squirrel colonies there that are actually bigger than any I could find right yeah. here. They're really massive. Very definitely. <laughs> I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. There are there are some pretty good sized squirrels up yeah. there, and so in populations as well. Yeah. So you get uh, you get Corylus origanus there, the Northern Pacific rattlesnake, just moving into those colonies in really large numbers. Oh, I bet. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Cool, really cool sight. Yeah. Now. <clears throat> Once again, probably one of the mundane questions that you always get, but you know you're always going to get because you're you know <laughs> yeah. you're a professor. How sure. does someone get into this? How would someone you know? Um, is there volunteer opportunities for not necessarily lay people per right. se, but people that have some experience with you know dealing with rattlesnakes and things of that nature? Yeah, potentially. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's kind of an esoteric field, right? So it's right. the type of thing where they're aren't a ton of opportunities because it's usually just a few kind of specialists like me here and there that right. are doing this type of research. Um, but we, we recruit volunteers. I usually um, recruit um, undergraduate students who are in my lab or at San Diego State who are mm-hmm. interested in getting research experience in this area. Okay. And so they're looking to 
to go into a career in some field related to animal behavior or herpetology or wildlife ecology or, or conservation biology and then want to get experience on a research project in that area. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a number of students who are, are who are willing to volunteer to to help out on those projects. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we don't we don't have the budget to hire people. You know, our right. funding for, for this type of research is few and far between. So we tend so to I've heard yeah, we tend to rely pretty extensively on on undergraduate students who are serving as research volunteers. We can offer course credit for that. So right. if they're enrolled at the university here. Um, they can they can get um, some course credit for, mm -hmm. for volunteering on these research projects. Okay. Uh, so that's that's what I would suggest to people who are looking to get into kind of a more academic realm of herpetology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is to to get into um, a, a, a program, and if you're if you as an undergraduate, if you get good research experience in programs like that, mm -hmm. then that will allow you to get into a graduate program. Okay. And you can pursue a master's or a PhD in a graduate program, focusing on some aspect of of whatever it is you're interested in, in mm -hmm. terms of animal behavior, or herpetology, or or you know wildlife research. Right, because I know some of your um, and I don't want to use the improper term. So some of the students that you have, mm -hmm. uh, some of my graduate students, graduate yeah. students. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't know if it was postgraduate or graduate. Right. I would get those sure. backwards. So, uh, but yeah, some of your graduate students were. Uh, doing some work on spatial ecology was one of the topics that kind of stuck out to me, and yep. just all kinds of right. varying topics. But we're also, you know, like you said, doing the research with you. Exactly. Yeah. So the, each, each student kind of, you know, I work with them to find a project that they're interested in, and mm -hmm. it's also similar enough to my own res research interests that we have the resources to support that research. Right. So. Um, it, it can, you know, they, they tend to be focused around the areas that I'm interested in, herpetology mm -hmm. and behavior. And, but within that, they can be, um, I have one student who's working more closely on kind of the maternal attendance behavior of pit viper species that right. we were talking about earlier. Right. Uh, so she's looking at kind of some physiological details of those systems, looking at hormone levels within mothers and young and oh, wow. doing some really interesting work along those lines. Um, I have another student who's doing uh, more uh, kind of conservation-related work on the mountain yellow-legged frogs, mm -hmm. another herb species here that's that's in trouble. Right. Um, so he's working with with folks at the San Diego Zoo's Institute for Conservation Research. Oh, okay. Um, as well as you know, working in my lab to kind of uh, look at reintroducing that frog, breeding them in captivity and reintroducing them to parts of the range where they've been extirpated mm -hmm. uh, to, to help protect that species. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just various different projects like that. Right. Um, I take on students that work on all sorts of different things. Okay. Now, as far as um, lay people or non-academics or, you know, mm -hmm. however you want to put it, the regular yeah. herp folk out sure. there, owning venomous reptiles, what's your take on that? Um... You know, <laughs> I'm torn because in, in one reason, I'm not sure what the laws are. I think they vary from state to state. Right, they vary from state to state. You have to have um, some special permits in California, mm -hmm. which I, I do think it should be the type of thing where you need to go through a fairly rigorous permitting process. Right. Because these are potentially dangerous animals, and you should be, it should be determined that you're a responsible, reliable caretaker, mm -hmm. um, and in order to have them, I, I think you need there needs to be a permitting process. Right. Because if if that's not the case, then what happens is 
um, irresponsible people get these animals and then get in trouble and get bit and they put a burden on kind of the the health insurance industry or the public health care system and it, you know people could create an outcry for us hey why does any why is anybody allowed to have these right should, you know that it just ruins it for everybody right yeah exactly um I, i'm in kind of a different category because i have a different set of permits for my research animals mm -hmm. um but it, I, I do see kind of the educational value if you will and having people who are responsible and permitted to be willing to to keep these animals, much like zoos or museums might keep animals in captivity and, right. and kind of use them as educational tools to mm -hmm. try to convince the public at large that these are right. interesting, kind of fascinating and important animals mm -hmm. and that they deserve our, our respect and our protection. Right. You know, it, in, in the end, I think if people don't know about these animals or don't have, if those animals don't have advocates, mm -hmm. strong advocates who are willing to you know, push for their protection in, in the public realm, then they just won't be as well protected as they should. Okay. And so if if kind of allowing people, responsible people, to keep them as, as um, educational animals helps that advocacy, then I'm mm -hmm. all for it in that respect. Okay. You know, I think that, that would be an important thing. Um, but, I, but I do think they should be regulated, and I also agree with what you were saying earlier that our in terms of collecting them from the wild, that should be very strictly regulated. Right. You know? we, we don't want to, to have this situation where just anybody can go out and, and kill or collect as many rattlesnakes as they want. And yeah, you know, that's something that, you know, for whatever reason, it just never, and maybe it was the way I was brought up, never, you know, it was a big thing for me to, you know, take everything I saw in the wild. Right. You know, I would pick it up, look at it, take a photograph of it if I had a camera at the time, and be like, wow, that was awesome. Yeah. And then leave it there for somebody else to find. Right. You know? I think that, that displays a lot of respect for nature, and I, I tend to be that way myself. I don't want to collect things because... I, I, I mean, like don't get me wrong, I've been very tempted a couple of times sure. to come across a couple of really right. you know, unusual or rare species you know, out in the desert. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm never going to see this again. Right. Damn it! All right. But, but you do have the experience, and you have the photo, and then oh, yeah. in some ways the experience is richer for the idea that, hey... You know, I had that encounter, and that animal encountered me, and it's still out there somewhere. And right. You know, maybe it was a interesting and important encounter from the perspective of that animal as yeah, well. Yeah, very true. And then I left it alone. It left me alone. We, we there's kind of a, a a respect for for keeping nature in as intact a, a system as possible. Right. And and we can we can visit and we can interact with those animals and we can you know have those rich experiences without you know kind of picking away at them without right. you know taking a piece of them exactly you know, it's just like if you um, I don't know if you if you go out and you see a, a beautiful piece of scenery or a nice plant or something you can mm -hmm. see it and appreciate it and not cut it down and keep it with you you know right right exactly now as far as the Florida Python ban. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that aspect of it? So the ban, you mean the, there's... Well, it's a potential ban, I should say. So they're banning people from keeping them and kept it? Well, according to the way it, it's written is people that own them now mm -hmm. will be able to keep them. Right. After that, nobody can keep them, nobody can import them or, or purchase them. Huh, and no, and it, let's say if you live in a certain state you cannot bring it with you I don't care how long you've had it hmm. is in a nutshell 
you know, I'm sure there's more legalese to it, but that's right. basically. So there, there won't be even like captive bred animals won't be available in the pet trade there. Right. Okay. No, I didn't know that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess this is all like I was saying earlier. This tend, this is a reactive thing, right? They're reacting to the fact that the pythons there have gotten out and um, invaded the Everglades and are right. potential problem species in terms of the impacts they could have on the natural community. Right. So I understand that. I understand mm -hmm. what the state's trying to do um, to prevent that type of thing from happening. Um, yeah, again, it comes back to what we were just talking about. I, I, you want to walk the line between, you know, being having an outright ban that kind of keeps people from being able to appreciate these animals in right. a responsible way. Mm-hmm. But still having it regulated because obviously if it's unregulated, that's where you get the problems like the the Python and Everglades situation. Right. So maybe it just needs to be strong, more strongly regulated. But an outright ban seems like it might be extreme to me. Um, yeah, because I'm have looking to at it, sit down and think about the issues more, and maybe right, talk and to some of the principal people involved in making those decisions. But right, because the way I'm looking at it is okay. Yes, you know there was a tornado. And, you know, a snake farm got devastated, yep. you know, as did, you know, many other things. Right. Some of the snakes happened to survive. And this is just a theory. You know, they're not saying, you know, these snakes came from this population. Because no one knows. I mean, there's right. no genetic, you know, we weren't keeping genetic material on these things. Yeah. They were breeders. <laughs> right. But, you know, they're claiming, uh, the, the theory is that these snakes escaped, obviously, from this in, uh, enclosures that were right. there, and then are now possibly breeding in the Everglades. Right. Or the other side of the fence is that species are being released after they get too big because people didn't realize right. you know, what they were getting into when they bought them. My personal opinion is I think anybody owning either a venomous animal or anything over six foot should definitely you know, look into getting some education, some serious education right. before you start owning these things. I mean, me personally, I've owned a you know a twenty foot Burmese python. Right. It's not something to play around with. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's a serious animal. I honestly had to get. I honestly had to give mine to a rescue because it tried to eat my son. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and thankfully he's okay. It was in the enclosure. And it struck at the enclosure, and that was it. I was okay. I'm done. Yeah. You gotta go. Well, Sorry. So, uh, that that seems reasonable to me that you would have that response and. Um, but, you know, as, as your experience indicates, that people do need to be aware that, yeah, they're dealing with a serious animal, right? right. Like, this is, this is something where you need to find a responsible way if it, if it comes to the, the point that um, you're, you can't have that animal anymore. You need to have a responsible way to, to deal with it. And right. You did that, but maybe a lot of other people wouldn't. Right. Would go out and release it. And so... That's why I think you, unfortunately, just need to have regulations to prevent that from happening. Right. And to make sure that people who have these animals are being responsible. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, because, you know, I, I think it's important that they don't get out and create problems like they have right. in Florida. I mean, that, that's, that's a major ecological effect on that on the Everglade ecosystem, which has already been heavily impacted by all sorts of things. Inva other invasive yeah, species. Other invasives, and, you know, yeah. other kind of anthropogenic factors. We don't need to throw kind of more snakes into the mix. Right, exactly. You know, regardless of where it came from, whether it was, you know, the you know breeding facility that got right. destroyed or what have right. you, 
you know, I think it was a knee-jerk reaction myself to, because it seemed to all stem from uh, a young uh, child actually uh, being killed by an escaped python that was oh. in, her, in her home. Oh, I didn't realize that. That, that, the, uh, that the uh, couple that owned the home, I guess they had a piece of plywood or something on top, and the snake came out and, you know, Wow, I didn't realize uh, that suffocated the child. Was that something that happened recently? Um, I think it was about a year or two ago now. Okay. But it seemed like as soon as that happened, all this, you know, starting bans and, right. you know, went to Congress and all this other stuff started happening. It was well, like, okay, but the populations were there before. Right. And it seems like, you know, now that this, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, it, it's total tragedy. Right. But it seemed like a near-jerk reaction of politics seemed to try right. to keep in the good graces. And it just yeah, I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is that, you're right, the snakes are there already. Yeah. They're not, I don't think there's any way, I haven't seen any feasible proposal to get rid of them. Right. I mean, the, uh, as years of research on the invasive brown tree snake in Guam has shown, Snakes can be incredibly difficult animals to control from that perspective, just because they are so secretive and cryptic. And right. I've I've seen people pull a twenty foot python out of a tiny little hummock of grass <laughs> that you couldn't even <laughs> if it didn't have a radio tag in it, you would never see the. You never know it was there. You never know it was there. Like um, they're they're not very susceptible to kind of like trapping. Um, they're not susceptible like poison bait. Um, they can they can go for months without eating they're just i mean you can't control them the same way you, you control other predators right the poison bait thing um now correct me if i'm wrong but i read something somewhere about they were trying to poison the snakes on guam uh -huh. with aspirin filled mice or something yeah, like that yeah I, I think they were they were thinking of loading mice i don't know if it was aspirin or what but with some sort of a poison right and why they distributing those in the environment with the hopes that the snakes would eat them and die and I'm sure you could kill a bunch of snakes that way, but there's no way you would kill all the snakes. Right. Like some individuals would just, you know, be hiding or would be not eating for a while or would regurgitate that thing. And exactly, you know, there's so many other factors right. involved. You would you would wipe out a bunch, but if you don't get them all, they'll just the population will rebound. Right. You know, you're you're not going to get all of them with like that type of poisoning. At least not with snakes. People have used that to wipe things like uh, rats off of islands. I've, you know, people have effectively trapped and poisoned all of the rats off of protected islands where they were, like, eating seabird eggs, for example. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, rats are mammals. They're, they're active, very high-energy animals that need to eat all the time. Oh, very definitely. You know, they move around a lot more than, than some snakes do, so they're more susceptible to trapping and poisoning. Right. Um, control options for snakes are just more difficult than... And in a habitat like the Everglades, with an animal like a python, man, forget about it. Like, it's yeah, they're not I mean, going to get rid of them. They're there to stay. Yeah, you know, and I mean, we can manage it to a certain extent, but even to a certain extent, it's like, right. you know. I, I think they're, you know, you've got to start treating them like alligators. Um, alligators are potentially dangerous animals. That right. In that case, they're a natural part of the environment, but alligators will occasionally kill people. Mm -hmm. under some circumstances and um, you know people just have to learn to live with the fact that our, the, the natural world has some danger to it I mean the, the reality is <coughs> we're willing to accept danger and risk in all sorts of aspects of, of our life Right. I mean driving your car around is incredibly dangerous 
way more dangerous than dealing with rattlesnakes or pythons or mountain lions or whatever, right. you know? But we accept that because of we're, we, we want to have the benefits of like this transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if we want to have the benefits of an intact natural world, we just have to accept that that takes some risks. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that the, the risks from things like alligators and snakes and mountain lions are statistically they're a, a sliver, a fraction of what the risks are from like traffic accidents. Right. You know? Well, just in snakes alone, I've uh, read several studies that said, you know, you're more likely you know, even in an active outdoor lifestyle, you're more likely to be struck by lightning yep, you are. than you are to get bitten and envenomated by a rattlesnake. Yeah. And that's not even, you know, potentially dying. It's just getting bitten in right. the first place. Yeah, no, you that, know? That, that, that's But the media demonizes these things. Right. Anything reptilian, and I think, like you said, now, you know, about going back to the whole alien thing, you know, it seems like the... Yeah. Mass media just demonizes the hell right. out of reptiles right. altogether. Yeah, you have these people whose reaction is, well, why do we have these animals out there? Let's just get rid of them all. We should right. them out. They don't realize that they're kind of important and natural parts of the environment. And, you know, yeah, that the lightning strikes statistic, I've seen that from the, the department, the U.S. Department of Health keeps stats on, on right. you know, things that cause people harm or death that mm -hmm. lightning is way above snake bite. Yeah. You know, all sorts of crazy accidental things are above snake bite. Like, snake bite is not a major health issue, even for people who spend a lot of time outside with snakes. Right, right. Now, you personally, have you ever, um, I'm sure you've been bitten several times. <laughs> oh, no, I, I haven't. No, I haven't actually. Really? I've never been bitten by a venomous snake. I, I'm, I've been bitten by all sorts of harmless snakes. Well, that's what I was saying. That's what I was saying. Is yeah, I'm yeah. sure you've been bitten by many harmless snakes. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, we, we handle them differently, right? Like good. if you want to go catch <laughs> yeah, a snake, definitely. You, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta just tackle it and expect that animal is gonna bite you a bunch of times before you kind of right bite, musk, thrash in your face. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, but we're we're very cautious with the venomous species. We use like sticks and tongs and and the tubes to handle them. That's one thing I saw on your website that I was yeah. um, not that you know my opinion matters, but I was fairly impressed that you know I saw you actually using a tube. Right. And you know again the media, a lot of the times when you see. Individuals on certain channels, yeah. <laughs> yeah. capturing snakes, whether yeah. they be venomous or not, right. are just free handling. Yeah, that, that's a very irresponsible portrayal, and I don't like it. I wish they wouldn't. I wish those channels would actually show what you know. Most professionals in the field, our primary concern is actually the health and safety of not just us, but the animal as well. Right. And this is a research animal for us. It's. You know, we're, we're taking advantage of it to learn something about the natural world and we have to treat it with respect and, and do things that are as safe for that animal as possible. Right. So jamming its head into the ground with a metal stick and like, you know, and grabbing it behind the neck where you could, you know, potentially harm it or even break the neck sometimes. Right. That's just not the way to do it. You know, they're safer, better, more respectful ways to handle those animals. So, right. you know, the, the whole tubing system is... It takes some patience, but it works very well and is very safe. Right, right, definitely. Well, uh, Dr. Clark, I really appreciate your time uh, sure, and my look forward to potentially speaking with you again in the future. Yep. Thanks very much. Yep. And so there you have it. That was Dr. Rulon Clark of San Diego State University Herpetology Department. And uh, I'd like to thank him once again for coming onto the show and sharing uh, some of his research uh, ideas with us and what he's been doing. And uh, 
Really look forward to seeing your comments on the blog post and the uh, show notes. And uh, we'll see you here next week on the Reptile Living Room. <laughs>